Well, then, uh, it is time for us to delve into the Word of God, a teaching po- portion of our worship service, and I'm excited, as always, to uh, look over with you and to dig in deep this wonderful passage that we have before us. Take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This wonderful and helpful book of Ecclesiastes that God preserved for us shows us how to present the gospel. Have you been picking that up? It shows us how to present the gospel. The sage has been proving with life experiences over and over again to his unbelieving audience just how how life under the sun that is separated from God is a condemned life, a lost cause, a futile experience without lasting satisfaction. Now that's bad news. We might say that an under the sun lifestyle is like a building that sits condemned in the middle of the woods. In fact, has so for, oh, ten years now. No longer provides all the comforts of home, doesn't protect from the elements, its roof doesn't keep out the rain because half of it isn't there and the other half has gaping holes. Its outer sheathing has rotted away, revealing the studs, half of which have been eaten away by termites. The rest is ready to give way. Signs that animals and insects have taken up residence there are all over the place. No running water, no heat or electricity. It's one big hazard. And it illustrates life under the sun that is separated from God. And nothing can change its condemned status. Nothing. Of course, some folks don't want to see it that way, and they live life as if it were prime property. But their attempts to glorify it is as futile as trying to remodel a condemned house. They lay rugs down over the the dirt floors. They hang a few pictures on the half-eaten studs. They interpret the gaping holes in the roof as newfangled skylights. And they call it home. Absolutely futile. If you've been with us since the start of Ecclesiastes, you've seen by now that the sage has been painting this bleak picture of life from a number of different vantage points in order to show us how how fleeting it is it's fleeting nature this fleeting nature of life if you remember there is the natural element that came in chapter one the monotony and futility of the cycles of nature right the sun runs its course every day but never produces anything new as do the wind and the rain. They don't produce anything new either. If nature works endlessly but produces no gain, well, why should we think that we would? That's the point. He then brings in the divine element. Hopefully we've been getting our arms around this, God's intervention in human affairs. The fallen world operates according to his will. Remember, at the fall, God cursed the earth, the serpent, human relationships, right? Nothing runs as it was intended to run, but all will run according to God's will for a fallen and cursed world. Man will make a living, but only by the sweat of his brow. Women will give birth, but in great pain. There will be blame shifting, usurpation of authority. Women's lips started here, as did the potential for spousal abuse. Also, uh, all of nature and the animal kingdom is off-kilter, to say it 
to say, to say the least. You'll always battle weeds in your garden and chase away the wildlife that eats your cabbage. According to God's will, hum- humanity lives within his time constraints that are inescapable and uncomfortable. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to heal and Uh, or a time to kill rather and a time to heal a time to plant and a time to uproot a time to laugh and a time to cry and more than this as the sage told us already God has tasked fallen individuals to be necessarily frustrated in their attempts to make a life for themselves without him all their efforts will ultimately be used for his glory and the good of his people and they are subject to the consequences of Adam's sin. They cannot reverse the aging process or escape death or take their precious possessions with them beyond the grave. There's also the human element. This is a third element that we've come in contact with, the depraved nature that everyone inherited from Adam and all the spiritual inability that comes with it. This means that while people may not act as bad as they are, as bad as their nature is, thanks to God's common grace, which restrains them, there are plenty who do. Oh, yes. And they will oppress others in their striving for personal and lasting gain. Now, it's this human element that the sage deals with in our, in our last section of the first half of this book. It's rather long. It begins in chapter 5, verse 8, and it stretches all the way to the end of chapter 6. So what about humanity, then, does the sage want us to consider? Oh, its drive, its motivation, its relentless and aggressive want for more, more of what it can never get, lasting satisfaction, of course. That's the theme that each of the parts of this lengthy section carries forward, and they all use the same word to do it. This is fascinating. The word is consume. Consume. For example, verses 11 and 12 point to those consumed with serving money. And then in verses 13 to 17, it's those consumed with hoarding money. And in chapter 6, first nine verses, it's those consumed by status. I will get to those in the coming weeks. But the word consume, this is a translation of a very common Hebrew word for eat. To eat a meal, to eat bread, to eat when one is hungry. But it also has a figurative meaning as well. We find it used in a positive sense For example, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, for the joy of understanding the word of God. Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became a joy to me and a delight to my heart. So eating here refers to an intimate knowledge of God's word that results in joy. We use it the same way today. We ask someone, Hey, do you enjoy the lecture? And he responds, enjoy it. He says, I loved it. I ate it up. We know what he means, right? How's your consumption, by the way, of Scripture? Just by the way. Do you gobble up a daily fill of divine truth? 
Do you find biblical direction tasty? What a sad state of affairs the modern church in America is right now. So little knowledge of doctrine. And of course, the Bible study isn't popular, so what can we expect, right? So many Christians suffer from spiritual malnutrition. Eating is really a spiritual activity that is associated with intimacy with God. This is the figurative part of it now. Intimacy with his word. And it results in joy and satisfaction. But this is a a context that applies only to those who have an above-the-sun worldview. No one under the sun and separated from God would ever find scripture this appealing, right? No one would. So Eid has a negative twist for the godless. Oh, yes. They want to know intimately the joy of lasting satisfaction, of having wealth and status for their own sakes. And they'll do whatever it takes to get it, having no regard for others who may get in their way. They're hungry. They want to eat. Now, a drive for more, to consume or devour for selfish reasons at the expense of others, is really a good desire gone bad. The Bible identifies it by many names. Ungodly lust, sinful passions, evil desires. You get the idea. A person operating by an above-the-sun worldview who has a healthy appetite for God and his word enjoys the benefits of true worship while fallen individuals bound by an under-the-sun worldview have a healthy appetite for selfish gain and are idolatrous. You see the difference? It's very stark. Eating in these contexts smacks of idolatry, of covetousness, of greed, ungodly lusts and passions. Those so aggressively motivated, well, they, they cannot get enough, always wanting more, always needing to be satisfied and to do whatever it takes to achieve it. Their hunger is dangerous. It always, it's always risky, by the way, when someone has to work alongside people with a voracious appetite for power, right? Because he or she is most likely to get bitten by them. And I'm sure that all of you have a few bite marks of your own. Okay, so the sage talks about an insatiable lust that drives fallen individuals to mistreat others who get in their way of their passions. Gutted. So what? What does this have to do with our passage this morning? Okay, that's a fair question. The Hebrew word for eat doesn't occur anywhere in our two verses. We're in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 and 9. But though that's true, verses 8 and 9 are very much part of this larger section. And the way they fit makes absolute sense when you understand that they show the results of an all-consuming, lust-driven behavior of fallen individuals. They, point, they paint more of the bleak context of life under the sun by describing human government, how it's consumed with things like power and wealth and control, longevity, security, 
and lasting satisfaction. And how it satisfies its hunger by eating its citizens. They'll even eat their own if their own get in their way and don't play by their rules. To say it very simply, the oppression described in verses 8 and 9 is the result of an idolatrous want for more that the rest of the section will develop. All right? That's how it fits. So the Old Testament, you should know, often talks about idolatrous consumption and oppression of others in the same breath. Psalm 53, verse 4 says, Have the workers of injustice no knowledge who eat up my people like they are bread? And have no call, and have not called upon God. And then there's the, of course, first three verses of Micah 3, very graphic. And I said, Hear now, you leaders of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good, who love evil, who tear off the skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, smash their bones, and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a cauldron. Wow. Let's not forget, too, the example, many examples of God destroying those nations that he had previously appointed to chastise his people Israel because those nations abused and took advantage of Israel? Oh yeah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's all over the place. Now in our passage, we get an idea of what human government amounts to at the end of the day. We see its true colors, and it's typical of all human governments, past, present, and future. Here's the thrust of the passage. And I have printed this in the bulletin for our ease of flow. The outline is there as well. Here's the thrust. Human government takes advantage of its poorer citizens by extortion, depriving them of a fair trial and the administration of righteousness because its bureaucracy looks out only for itself, leaving the godless with tyranny, which is better than anarchy. But there is a much better way. Okay, that's the thrust. And this gist, oh, it's so depressing if it's true. But depressing truths, you see, become significant elements in evangelism. They add to the bad news that paints the background to highlight the good news. So people know all too well, I think, they know all too well the plight of living under corrupt government. And the sage replies, uh, I'm sorry, relies on their experience to lead them to a better way. This is how we evangelize. Let's see how he does it. The first major truth that he brings out is this. Human governments take advantage of its poorer citizens by extortion, depriving them of fair trials and administration of justice. Now, God established government before the fall. You say, he did? Where? Well, he was the government. <laughs> and Adam and Eve were his officials to rule and subdue the earth. After the fall, man threw off God's rule for their own and ever since have abused God's universal command to rule and subdue the earth. Everyone is under the authority of a corrupt government. Everyone. 
without exception. Corrupt? Really? All of them? Yes, every single one of them. Depraved people ruling, uh, ruling anybody amounts to depraved governments, right? It's as simple as that. And when depraved people rule other depraved people, it is a foregone conclusion, beloved, that there will be weighty tensions between them. Doesn't world history prove this? Has there not always been oppression by the elite on the one hand and the uprisings and coups by the oppressed on the other? Well, of course they have. It's, it's actually the premise for classic Marxism, by the way. And it doesn't matter how a government defines itself, that is, what its constitution may say. We all know, I think, that those in power violate their own constitution all the time just by reinterpreting it in a way that justifies their corruption. Look at verse 8 and see how the sage leads into this discussion with his unbelieving audience. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of just and justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at this sight. Now, the if at the beginning of this verse does not suggest, of course, that the sage, that what the sage says about government is, is only a possibility. Oh, no. No, according to the rest of verses 8 and 9, the sage states a foregone conclusion about government. The fact that he warns his listeners not to be shocked is a dead giveaway of that. Now, oppression, as he'll go on to describe, happens all the time. To varying degrees, in various ways. No, make no mistake about that. If there is any conditional element to if, it would apply to the person he's addressing, the one observing the oppression. In other words, if you happen to see this, don't be shocked because this happens all the time, is the idea. And more than this, we can be sure that the force of the grammar here shows the oppression of human government Again, to be a foregone conclusion because human beings are by nature depraved. And this is how they oppress their citizens. They gain all the wealth they can by extortion. This is what's behind the phrase denial of justice and righteousness in the province. The Hebrew word for justice and righteousness in this context where they're especially tied to government, refer to judges and the way they administer justice in the land, or not, as the case may be. Said judges are corrupt and part of a corrupt system, having been put there by corrupt governing officials. Corrupt judges are partial to the system, and so the chances of a fair trial are slim to none. The reference to righteousness can have a broader meaning in this context. It refers to conducting jurisprudence in a righteous way. But the chances of that happening are also slim to none. The sage made reference to this a few chapters back, you might remember, in chapter 3, verse 16. He said, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. The deliberate manipulation that government practices, especially through the court system, that keeps them in power and protects their interests at the expense of hurting their citizens, 
It amounts to extortion. They threaten to jail anyone who impedes their progress, including their own colleagues who might develop a conscience and want to expose the corruption of the government. And we've seen this take place, I think, within the past few years just in our own government, haven't we? Sage adds more to this picture in the rest of the verse by giving the reason behind corrupt government. The reason is its hierarchy is evil and looks out for itself, very simply. For example, we, we call this bureaucracy, all right? A, bureauc- a bureaucracy is a hierarchical system that makes the important decisions in the country that representatives of the people elected by the people should be making instead. That's a bureaucracy. And those of a bureaucracy look out for one another. They have each other's backs. Look at verse 8, the very end. For one official watches another official, and there are higher officials over them. Oh, yeah. Former Republican U.S. Congress congressional aide Mike Lofgren, another sane individual, wrote a, or sane unbeliever, I should say, wrote a significant work that exposed in our government what the sage is talking about here for bureaucracy. He points to a corrupt cadre of of politicians and military personnel and also other agencies that work together to control the government or the country and run it their way under the guise of being upstanding and constitutional. Hear his words, quote, A shadow government ruling the United States that pays little heed to the plain words of the Constitution. Its governing philosophy profoundly influences foreign and national security policy and such domestic matters as spending priorities, trading, investment, income inequality, privatization of governmental services, media presentation of news, and the whole meaning and worth of citizens participating in their government. I have come to call this shadow government the deep state, end quote. By the way, he's the one credited for that phrase, the deep state. When government officials in high-powered positions make money well beyond their pay grade from shady deals with foreign nations, you better believe that they'll do whatever they can to keep their agenda and their position as long as they can. Anything. So the sage paints reality for his audience. There are, of course, citizens who will deny this portrait of human government for any number of reasons, fear of being labeled, losing their job, being jailed. Some, however, are just loyal to the ruling administration. And you can see that they're just, of course, fooling themselves when they do their level best to interpret away things like inflation, higher taxes, abuse of the system, abuse of power, rigged elections, unfair trials, and other obvious flagrant power grabs. But let's understand that any sane unbeliever, any sane person, thinking person under the sun, even 
a fallen individual, and then that's really who I'm talking about, a, a sane but fallen individual, will take a hard look, will be objective at human government and its practices, and will have to admit it's corrupt. We'll have to admit this. It's in our history. It's in the history of the world governments throughout time. Any political science professor worth his salt would also agree. Eric Blair, whom you know as George Orwell, was one such sane unbeliever who also took a hard, honest look at government and could see tyrannical rule for what it was. He wrote about it in his most famous and influential work, of course, 1984. Let's not forget that our text is a word also from the sage who brings it up in the context of Ecclesiastes, right? So you, you know where he's going with this. Along the way, chapter after chapter, he's painting this the worst picture of human nature possible and in all its many areas of life, the hedonistic lifestyle, the wealthy lifestyle, the lifestyle grounded in human wisdom, the covetous, the fiercely independent, the power grabber. And, 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 and no matter how fallen people are under the sun want to approach life in hopes of securing lasting satisfaction, they all end up the same way chasing after the wind. And he brings this into sharpest focus for his readers each time before he turns their attention to their only one hope, which is the life that is centered in God himself. He'll do that in this lengthy section as well, as we'll see in the coming weeks, but he isn't finished painting the bleakest picture that he can of human government, which comes in verse 9. Here he argues on the basis of what he just said that the only consolation for the one who lives under the sun without God in his life has, the only consolation he has, is tyrannical government, which is far better than anarchy. Now we're, we're witnessing to somebody, right? This is what he's saying. Look at verse 9. After all, A king who cultivates the field is beneficial to the land. We understand the sage to be somewhat sarcastic here, right? Can you hear the sarcastic tone? We might wonder if if he isn't even quoting the king's court at this point. Something like, never forget, folks, we're for the farmers of this great land who labor tirelessly to grow much-needed crops. Where would you be without them? Of course of course they're not for the farmers. There is just, this is just propaganda to fool as many gullible and unsuspecting citizens as possible to keep them under the king's thumb. This is tyranny at its best. And this is a consolation, you say? This is a consolation? Did you just say that, Pastor? Yes, I did. This is a consolation. Sorry. That's as good as it gets under the sun in lives of those who have no room for God in them. It's as as good as it gets. And we can imagine how the sage would dialogue with some godless person at this point with a sarcastic tone, just for emphasis. Yeah, Saul, you live under tyranny. King and his court 
benefit while you suffer and waste away. They don't really care about you. They protect their own interests. They protect one another. You're, you're not one of them. You're just the bottom feeder. That's it. Go ahead. You keep believing the lie that everything's just fine, that the court is doing right by you, that you can trust the government. After all, a nation needs government if it's going to survive, right? And that's the essence of verse 9. As you know, anarchy describes a state of disorder because there is no recognizable authority. That's anarchy. And a country in a state of anarchy would be terrible because everyone would do what is right in his own eyes. And we have already seen from our study the book of Judges a few years back what results from that. Tyranny, on the other hand, might be cruel and oppressive to the governed, but at least it cultivates the land if it is, even if it is mainly to, to benefit those in charge. So which would you prefer? Well, neither. How about democracy? Sorry, that's not on the list. So of these two evils, the lesser is tyranny. Well, even still, who wants to settle for that? Well, that's the point. No one does. But that's the best there is when it comes to human government under the sun. And that's the bleak part of the sage's message in this passage. It is a sad and hopeless affair to live life where the best option is oppression, even to a mild degree. Now, at this point, there is bound to be some recoil from the, the corner of the unbelieving audience, certainly an American unbelieving audience. Surely this is not so here. This is America. We're a democracy. Our government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, it is on paper, but is that reality? We need to ask our unbelieving friends under the sun if it's reality. Don't forget that when Abraham Lincoln first uttered those words, the nation was in the middle of a civil war. Perhaps he didn't realize in a country that claims to be a democracy and has supporting constitution and bill of rights and three branches of government to ensure the balance of power and prevent tyranny, that fallen people always find a way to abuse the system. Oh sure, countries may enjoy a time of peace from relentless oppression, yes. And citizens might even benefit from a thriving economy in a term or two. I think we saw it with our last administration. But the undeniable fact is that as long as government is human, beloved, it necessarily is depraved. And as long as depraved individuals are at the helm, even the best of governments and the best of economic systems will still be sinful, selfish, godless, with great potential for human oppression. Unbelievers are idolaters with an aggressive hunger for more, the hunger for absolute power. There's always the temptation to be consumed by wealth and status. Consider our own country. 
All you have to do is compare the beginning of our nation and what the framers of the Constitution had in mind to where we are now to prove the point. There's no question that our nation's trajectory at 1776 took a downward spiral. And along the way, every one of its good seasons was never quite as good as the one before it. And every one of its bad seasons was always much worse than the one before it. Today we live in unprecedented times, don't we? Indeed, unrecognizable times to anyone over 40. Tyranny abounds. And if you don't think that that's true, you need to get your head out of the proverbial sand. The elites are manipulating people in situations by extortion to secure their power and wealth and control and longevity and agenda and satisfaction. They're making sweeping executive orders that are quite against our Constitution, and they're getting away with it. We know that. As I say, any sane, godless person who's honest with himself will see this. The right honorable Lord Acton, the historian and moralist, was another such sane unbeliever. He expressed similar sentiments in a letter to Bishop Crichton in 1887. He said, quote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Men, great men, are almost always bad men, end quote. He was closer to the truth than he knew. We would need to amend this to be theologically correct, though, right? Only, uh, all men are bad and deserve God's wrath. Only one man in all of history was good, and that, of course, was Jesus. Let me say that if we're learning anything from the sage today, it's that all human government is corrupt. Some may be more corrupt than others, and just as some depraved people express their depravity more than others, and depraved people are running human governments, so all governments are corrupt just by nature of being human. I mentioned a moment ago that the framers of our Constitution envisioned an America that was quite different than the one that we know today. But the sage's message here certainly would have applied to them. This is a timeless message, beloved. It may not have been the loud siren that it is to us, singling danger of of corrupt politicians so consumed with the goal of lasting satisfaction that they eat their citizens, but it would certainly have served as a warning bell to them that the best of men, said Bishop Ryle, are only men at best and fallen men at that. No matter how just, how righteous, how benevolent a government may manage to, to, they manage to create our founding fathers, no matter how Judeo-Christian it may be, it is not a theocracy and therefore still carries with it the seeds of discord, tyranny, human oppression because it is born or was born in the sin-sick heart of depraved men. Right? 
just to round this off, we would want to tell our sane and attentive non-Christian friend that has stuck with us so far that there's something much worse than tyranny, even worse than anarchy. And that's God's judgment at the end of time. This aspect is not in our text, but it is appropriate to mention because the sage will develop it further later and even conclude his book with it. So within the context of the entire book, we have to say that people who do not hunger and thirst after God will go from a deplorable situation to a worse one, the worse there is. If there is any redeeming value in fallen and oppressive human government, it, it's that it gives one a small foretaste of the judgment to come. And you can use that. As bad as it gets here with the oppressive leaders under the sun, it pales in significance to the condemnation that awaits from Almighty God. So what's the solution for our fallen friends? What hope can we give them? The psalmist answers that in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some praise their chariots and some their horses, but we praise the name of the Lord our God. Since verses 8 and 9 are part of a larger context, of course the punchline doesn't come until verses 18 and 19, but it certainly is obvious. There is a better way to live, even under tyrannical rule. And it's as a member of God's messianic kingdom. Only in that kingdom, under the theocratic rule of God, does true freedom ring in the life of an individual. Those who surrender to Christ can enjoy lasting satisfaction even while oppressed. Citizens of God's kingdom are consumed with God and his gift of salvation, and they rejoice in him. God's kingdom is quite different, you see. And the way the world would ever know that and the likes of this kingdom is by the way the church displays the kingdom living here. Among the characteristics of kingdom living that would surely catch the attention of any sane unbeliever are caring for widows and orphans, bringing up children in the training and admonition of Christ, maintaining a sterling work ethic, considering the interests of others as more important than, than self-interest, loving neighbor and even, as, uh, even loving enemy, returning good for evil, striving to be at peace with all men as, as far as it is possible for us to do so, never losing heart, accepting joyfully the persecution and trials that our king has tailor-made for our good to make us more like his son. And most importantly, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us from the bondage of sin that Adam plunged us into when he took and ate the fruit. For Adam, eating was figurative for accepting Satan's new way of life. Never would the verbs take and eat produce such a tragic outcome for humanity. Old Testament scholar, the late Derek Kidner, notes that while these verbs take and eat 
describe a very simple act in the garden. That act required a very costly remedy, for the Lord himself would have to taste death before these verbs became verbs of salvation. And that's exactly what they are. What must one do to be truly free, even in the midst of tyranny? Taste God's way and see that it is good. Jesus put more graphic, put this in more graphic terms to a large crowd of Jews in John 6. We read it this morning in our scripture reading. Let me just single out verses 53 to 56. Truly I, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. It should be clear to you by now, after our short discussion of Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 9, what Jesus meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He was speaking figuratively, of course. If anyone would be his disciple and belong to his coming kingdom, a reality which would give any Christian the necessary strength to live joyfully even under tyrannical rule, he must have an intimate relationship with Christ. That's what eating Jesus means, to have an intimate relationship with him, to know him intimately, to believe on him, to accept his way, all of which results in joy. Christ becomes your delight. Even under the sun, you become consumed with him. All the things that used to consume you don't consume you anymore. It's just him. And you ingest his words, and you become a disciple. This is the only option for true and lasting satisfaction. It is in the better kingdom. Jesus said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Oh God, our Father, we're so grateful for your goodness to us. You have given us a word, an ancient word, your word from your mouth, that we might rally around to study and know the truth. We're so grateful that we are not deceived by the things of this world, that we're not taken in by even government, nor do we put our trust in it. Though we pray for our government officials, that we pray they would come to see the better way, that they would come to see the better kingdom, we do pray for those that we encounter in our circles of life who are without Christ under the sun, that we would do our best to reveal to them through facts that are clear to them what the truth is, what reality is here, that we might, that we might see them in their desperation to Christ, that they may eat of him and taste and see that he is good. For your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church, we pray. Amen.